the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah I'm an Indian. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome to week two of State of the Theory. Yay! We're back. We're back. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your comments about our first episode. Yeah. It was much more than we had hoped for. And we are really, really excited about carrying this on. Yes, we are. I think we had no idea that we would get more than 10 likes on Facebook. When we first started, I sort of said, my family plus your family. Yes. And uh, we actually have people who are listening and commenting commenting and and tweeting. And please carry on because we want the conversation to go on beyond our random ramblings. Yes. So look us up on Facebook, tweet us, let us know your thoughts. Especially on specific theory. If there's a theorist that we are not mentioning... If there's a book that's relevant, please share that with us. Or if you want us to talk about any particular topic and discuss that, then we are always open to ideas. Yes. So what are we doing today? Today, we are changing tack a little bit today. We are talking about politics and the nation state um, in the context of India this week. And it's such a big topic, so I think we wanted to dive into it with a particular story. We're looking at a person called Srinivas Ramchandra Sivas, who was a professor. He was a specialist in Marathi literature. He was the head of Department of Modern Indian Languages at the Aligarh Muslim University in northern India. He was a man who happened to be gay. And one day in 2010, two men forced their way into his house and caught him having consensual sex with another man. And they filmed this and the university later used the film of this incident to suspend him, accusing him of bringing the university into disrepute. Gross misconduct was the charge. This went through the courts and he eventually won the case. Was he reinstated? He was reinstated, but in April of 2010, he was found dead in his apartment under mysterious circumstances. Autopsy results showed that there were traces of poison. Uh, It may have been suicide, it may have been murder. The case was never solved. The university, it later transpired, was responsible for the intrusion of the men into his apartment. They paid for the local TV crew to go in and film. It was a planned act. The public relations officer of the university later said, Sivas was captured on camera having sex with a rickshaw puller. It's a scandal no institution of repute can overlook. He was therefore placed under suspension by the order of the Vice-Chancellor. It's a really sad story, and I think we should finish the story by quoting from him. In 2010, uh, he said, I spent two decades here. I love my university. I have always loved it and will continue to do so no matter what. But I wonder if they have stopped loving me because I am gay. This is a horrific story. And there's so much in it, I think, for us to discuss. Yes. Why are we bringing up Dr. Siras today? We are bringing up this story because the particular issues and concerns about the legal status of homosexuality in Indian law 
is of particular relevance now. There is a case that is going through the Supreme Court of India at the moment, which is a timely uh, opportunity for us to think about the ways in which judicial systems categorize and put into hierarchy certain forms of life and certain human bodies over others. I think it bears mentioning at this point, before we go any further, that we both come from a position of privilege here when we talk about gay rights and legislation regarding LGBT because we're both straight. I'm white American. I am sort of Indian, but I live and work in Britain. Both of these things give us both a certain amount of privilege. And it also makes us outsiders to the to the movement, to the to the resistance, to the oppression that we are talking about. And whatever we say should be considered from this position of a privileged outsider. Yes. Having said that, the particular bit of the law that is of importance is what is called IPC 377. IPC stands for Indian Penal Code. According to IPC 377, quote, whoever voluntarily has carnal intercourse against the order of nature with any man, woman or animal shall be punished with imprisonment for life or with imprisonment for up to a period of 10 years. And there is an explanation there, which is carnal intercourse is taken to mean penile penetration. In other words, uh, what is being prescribed here explicitly, among other things, is male homosexuality as distinct from female homosexuality. Yes. This particular code has existed for 150 years. It dates from before Indian independence. Yes, we can thank the Victorians in some ways for this. One of the, one of the many things we can thank them for. <laughs> um, and then in 2009, the Delhi High Court uh, released a landmark judgment which struck down uh, this IPC. And the, one of the arguments that the court used in order to justify this decision is that the underlying theme of the Indian constitution is one of inclusiveness. That's the word that was used. From the judgment, this court believes that Indian constitution reflects this value deeply ingrained in Indian society, nurtured over several generations. The inclusiveness that Indian society traditionally displayed, literally in every aspect of life, is manifest in recognising a role in society for everyone. And one of the interesting things, and I think we'll go on to talk about this much more, is that both sides of this divide over the questions such as should homosexuality be tolerated, should homosexuality be legalised, is this a valid, legitimate life form, a legitimate way of being? Both sides are referring to a particular narrative of tradition. Yes. It's in 2009, just for for anyone who's less familiar with Indian politics, in 2009, the Congress Party was in power in India. And the Congress Party took power from the British in 1947 and oversaw the installation of the Constitution of India and has at its core a particular ideology of secularism, of inclusivity. And... I think it's good to distinguish between Congress in 2009 and the development of IPC 377 in more recent years. Yes. So in in between 2009 and now, the government has changed, as we discussed last week. The government in charge is now a, a much more virulently nationalist government, which brings a very different notion of tradition. It is still a notion of tradition, 
but the model of values that is ascribed to this notion of Indian tradition is very different. And perhaps as a reflection, in December 2013, the Supreme Court of India, which is a higher court than the Delhi High Court, reversed this judgment, f- uh, famously arguing that, quote, we hold that Section 377 IPC does not suffer from the vice of unconstitutionality. This judgment has been appealed. As we said, this appeal is now going through the court. And as of last week, the Supreme Court has accepted the grounds for appeal. And we await uh, a further judgment. So that's the legal situation. A a particular narrative of where the official bureaucratic trajectory has been in regulating gay lives. Yes. I think what's very interesting, too, and we'll come back to this more later, is the case of Dr. Siras. The video that was taken of him was filmed in 2010, after the Delhi High Court had overturned IPC 377. Yes. In other words, according to the Delhi High Court's position, when Professor Siras was charged and suspended, gay, consensual gay sex was not illegal. And this, this was raised with uh, the university authorities. And an academic from the university's faculty of law justified it on the grounds that the... A, that the Delhi High Court decision had been appealed against, and B, that the university itself fell under the jurisdiction of another court, of the Allahabad High Court. And, in other words, the specific Delhi High Court judgment did not apply. In a more general legal argument, the Faculty of Law Associate Professor Shakil Samdani was quoted in the Hindu newspaper saying, quote, Part 3 of the Indian Constitution dealing with fundamental rights guarantees certain rights subject to public order morality and health. A teacher cannot act in such a manner that it violates public order, is a threat to tradition and such acts give rise to AIDS. There is a huge amount there that we are going to try to begin to unpack in terms of establishing a nexus of legal argument, tradition, morality, religion and science being used cumulatively to justify the exclusion of gay lives and gay bodies from a mainstream. Yes. I think what's really interesting about a lot of this discourse, um, and you alluded to it when you were reading both quotes from both decisions, is this question of tradition and these competing stories about what constitutes Indian tradition. What helps us read some of these quotes is theory from nation-state theorists. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Benedict Anderson, Eric Hobsbawm, people who particularly in the 1980s, were starting to theorize how nation-states construct and reproduce themselves. And one of the ways that the nation-state does this is through the construction or invention, as Eric Hobsbawm puts it, of tradition. And he says that the invention of tradition pauses itself as a static, unchanging social structure that is a counterpoint to the rapidly changing and dynamic effects of modernity. And it is a way of attaching the nation-state to a narrative that takes the nation-state back to antiquity, rather than being a dynamic, modern process. And it's interesting to see how the courts in India have mobilized these two competing ideological conceptions of Indian tradition. One is this this inclusive democratic human rights discourse about India as a, as a state where all individuals are entitled to equality, they're entitled to a certain base level of human rights, to dignity, 
right? This secular language. Um, and then in 2013, a language of morality, um, a religiously inflected language of, of moral behavior as being determined by a state of nature, the natural order of things, and how these two competing narratives of tradition get put to work. I think that's very interesting, and I think that's, that's absolutely right. And it is really interesting that, that some of the words, key words you use there, are words that have been used again and again in, in media coverage of specifically the, the case of Professor Sivas, and the wider issue of LGBT rights in India. Words like dignity, words like tradition, progress, justice, and these are issues questions that are reflected in other movements, other civil rights movements across time and space. We we could make comparisons, for example, with the role of the judiciary in the, the recent gay marriage ruling in the US. Yes. We could think about it in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes. Um, and the ways in which bodies become sites of power and resistance. Yes. As Foucault famously said, Michel Foucault, where there is power, there is resistance. And one of the things I think we would like to engage in 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 more detail is the way in which Foucault's ideas help us understand better the role of the human body in its its relation to the nation-state. Having said that, I think following on from what we said earlier on about the caveat about our privilege, we should also say, say that in, in applying theory to activism, we are not attempting to legitimise it in some way. The activism is happening in a vibrant, diverse, contested manner outside of us. We are not part of it. We are in solidarity with various forms it takes, but it does not need us. No. And we see it as being an organic and necessary part of the systems that we're talking about. Yes. Um, It is a a part of the realm of discourse that we're discussing. We really did want to focus on the role of the body in a variety of ways. There are a couple different avenues that that we can go when we talk about embodiment. Um, And Foucault, I think, is a really good starting point because... He provides us with an explanation for a couple of of different perspectives that we can take. The first is the discourses of the court and how IPC 377 identifies and categorizes bodies and behavior and how it does so for the express purpose of identifying a legitimate, normal body of a citizen and of a member of society. And it's, Foucault is very interesting. One of the things that he gives us is quite a a funny, humorous, clever, but also very insightful take on Victorian language and how Victorian moral codes and penal codes gave rise to particular forms of ordering and categorizing bodies, particularly bodies as, as sexual actors and agents. And I wanted to start with part five of History of Sexuality, Volume 1. And this this is perhaps Foucault's most cited section. It's, it's excellent. Um, it's the right of death and the power over life. 
And in it, Foucault really articulates the history of the body and its role in underpinning the nation state and how the nation state and um, different forms of sovereignty have used the body, have mobilized the body in various forms. And at the beginning, he talks about discourse. Discourse is, is one of Foucault's theoretical tools. For Foucault, the older form of juridical power is the power to kill. It's the power over death. So the sovereign has the power to, what he says, essentially a right of seizure. A seizure of things, time, bodies, ultimately life itself. So the power to conscript into the army, the power to conscript into serfdom or for labor, the power to take as tax, not just money, but also resources. And it culminates in the privilege to seize hold of life in order to suppress it. So this is the state denying life when it suits the state to do so. But of course, Foucault says that since then, the West, and now I think we can talk about the post-colonial world in a more nuanced way. Um, the West has undergone a very profound transformation of these mechanisms of power. And he says that power has tended to be no longer this power of seizure, but that's just one element, that the state has now adopted a whole suite of techniques and technologies to manage life. And it becomes more about management about, um, he says, incitement, reinforcement, control, um, monitoring, optimizing, and organizing the forces under it, meaning the people, the body of the citizen, and the population. He describes it as a power bent on generating forces, making them grow, and ordering them, rather than one dedicated to impeding them, making them submit or destroying them. The state has a tendency to align itself with the exigencies of a life-administering power, that the state becomes an arbiter of the various channels through which one can live their lives, as opposed to an executioner. And this is, I think this is a starting point for understanding the ways that nation-states in particular create legislation, particularly around sexual activity and sexual behavior. I think that's very well articulated and... If we apply what you've just said to the specific case study of LGBT lives in India, there are a couple of things that immediately spring to mind. So I quoted earlier on from the actual legal code, which very specifically does not specify a word gay or yeah. a word homosexual. The phrase used is carnal intercourse against the order of nature. It doesn't specify because it doesn't need to. It doesn't specify because it cannot specify. The thing that is being excluded, the body that is being excluded, the way of life that is being excluded cannot be named. It is outside of language. Yes. It is outside of discourse. And the law that is excluding it is excluding it by not naming it. There is a linguistic discursive element to its exclusion. Yes, Foucault talks about that quite a bit. He talks about it in um, part two. And chapter one, and it's called The Incitement to Discourse. And he talks about the development of this inability or refusal to name as being part of 
an age of repression, which is what he calls the, the kind of rise of the Victorian sensibility. And he says, calling sex by its name became more difficult and more costly, as if in order to gain mastery over it, over sex, in reality, it had first been necessary to subjugate it at the level of language, control its, its free circulation in speech, expunge it from the things that were said, and extinguish the words that rendered it too visibly present. And even these prohibitions, it seems, were afraid to name it. The other, the other aspect of Foucault's analysis that I think applies very well to this, this particular case study is the multiple complex forces that are aligned in order to reinforce this exclusion, marginalization, erasure yes. of, of a life that could be gay. Yes. Or the, the erasure of the possibility of being gay. So you have tradition, you have morality, you have religion, and you have science. I think if we had to map out those four would probably be the main bodies of thought that are being put to work. Yes. In order to erase homosexuality. Yes. Tradition in the sense that the argument goes that homosexuality is a Western invention. Yep. And is brought into India by the West and therefore does not fit with this imaginary sense of what Indian tradition involves. Science in the sense that gay sex leads to AIDS and therefore there is a, a scientific need to regulate sexual behavior. Yes, and also a scientific, a pseudo-scientific way of understanding families yes. and how how reproduction happens and, and what a real family is, yes. and what a family should look like, how yes. it's made. And, and of course the family is always holy. Yes. So the, the third plank on this, on, on this holy trinity is God. Yes. And the, the ways in which all the major religions and spokespeople for all the major religions have been lined up against the normalization of homosexuality or the legalization of homosexuality. Yes. Uh, and this comes through in the way all of this this is reported because it is a, going back to the quote from from Professor Samdani from the AMU, Aligarh Muslim University Faculty of Law. A teacher cannot act in such a manner that it violates public order, is a threat to tradition, and such acts give rise to AIDS. He uses all three. He uses all three in one sentence in order to justify the the obviousness of the need to regulate human sexuality. Yes. He doesn't need to specify it in any greater detail. He doesn't need to define it. Acting in a way that violates any of this is enough to demonstrate the need to control. Yes. What's interesting too is a lot of liberal commentators have pointed out that despite some of India's more dynamic debates and issues regarding secularism and religion, religious leaders have unanimously um, spoken, I don't want to say all religious leaders because that's certainly not true, but certain wings of religious organizations in India have come together to support the more recent Supreme Court decision in 2013 to overturn the 2009 decision. Yes, it reminds me of uh, a TV debate that I was watching on, on YouTube the other day. We'll put the link in the, the description where 
there were two gay rights activists were being interviewed, one by a telelink and one in studio. And the one in studio was sat on a single seater chair and facing them in a row of three sat next to each other, you had a Muslim leader, a Hindu leader and a Christian leader all sat next to each other. There wasn't a table, but it was almost sort of a panel of judges yeah. uh, facing this lone gay rights activist. And it's interesting the ways in which spaces get used, the way in which the, the, the debate was set up uh, in order to privilege the normative view, the yeah. view th- and to marginalise and, and legitimise the marginalisation of these bodies that are considered to be different and abnormal and deviant. Yes. The more secularist view of multiple religions allowed to flourish freely in India, that is on display when we see religious leaders together in India at the expense of another marginalized set of groups. That And I think this is really important and one of the ways in which I think we can begin to conceptualize the process through which this marginalization happens is uh, to use the theorist Judge Agamben yes. and uh, Agamben's notion of states of exception. We should point out that Agamben is not talking about the specific case of sexuality, Yeah. but we think the following quote could be used to apply it in the present context. Yes. So Agamben says, modern totalitarianism can be defined as the establishment by means of the state of exception of a legal civil war that allows for the physical elimination not only of political adversaries, but of entire categories of citizens who for some reason cannot be integrated into the political system. And LGBT lives represent one category Yeah, that is accepted in order for order to establish itself these other forms of being, these other forms of human bodies cannot be integrated into the mainstream. And I think we should point out at this stage, as has been pointed out by activists and commentators, is that while LGBT bodies represent a very important example of the way in which states of exception, to use a government's phrase, are constructed, it's by no means the only example. Certainly not. In the specific case of India, another example that has been making news of late is what might be called Dalit bodies. Yes. So-called low-caste bodies. And we will return to this in a future episode to explore the parallels between what we're discussing today and marginalization of other kinds, which of course also bring with it particular notions of tradition, particular notions of religious doctrine and belief, and particular notions of order, disorder, cleanliness. Yes. And access to knowledge. Yes. I think to stick with Agamben and states of exception, let's go back to this issue of the hierarchy of the courts and which courts have jurisdiction, where and how. You might remember one of the arguments used to justify Professor Sivas's suspension was that Alaga Muslim University was situated outside of the jurisdiction of Delhi High Court. Yes. And it was situated under the jurisdiction of Allahabad High Court. And I think one of the ways in which we could use Agamben fruitfully to interrogate this 
specific distinction that is being made between the jurisdiction of the Delhi High Court and the jurisdiction of the Labad High Court is that one of the ways in which the state of exception is being introduced, maintained, reinforced is by playing the technicality of jurisdiction off against each other. So the margin where the jurisdiction of one court stops and the jurisdiction of another court starts is being used to reinforce marginalization. The gay man ends up in the middle between either two courts, as in this case, or between different aspects, different facets of the nation state and its political system. Yeah. So if we go back to the Supreme Court and its judgment in 2013, when it overturned the Delhi High Court's judgment, one of the conclusions of the Supreme Court judgment was that this is a matter for Parliament and not for court. In other words, the boundary between where the authority of judiciary and the authority of the legislature, that boundary is being sort of massaged in order to create spaces where states of exception can exist. Yes, and it leaves people's political subjectivities actually in the middle. It leaves them stranded between the various wings of the state. And it fundamentally misconstrues the role of the judiciary. Yes. At various moments, in various historical geographical contexts, courts have stepped in to say that Parliament has either overstepped its mark or Parliament hasn't done something that it should have done. The the judgment, the decision, the, the process of the judiciary does not happen external to all these other forms of public political life. I think what's interesting is that the ideal, the Supreme Court ideal is that the court is external to legislative bodies and to the rest of the state. And there is a belief that they are exempt or that they're separate from. But in fact, what we see is a complicated interplay between the two that has a direct impact on people's lives. I think that's very true. And I think as an example, we can turn to the US Supreme Court's judgment over the gay marriage ruling. Yes. Specifically, I'm thinking of Chief Justice John Roberts' dissent in that case, and I'm quoting from the dissent. Supporters of same-sex marriage have achieved considerable success persuading their fellow citizens through the democratic process to adopt their view. That ends today. Five lawyers have closed the debate, enacted their own vision of marriage as a matter of constitutional law. Stealing this issue from the people will for many cast a cloud over same-sex marriage, making a dramatic social change that much more difficult to accept. There are many ways in which we could unpack this, but one of the things that immediately springs to mind is the forcefulness of the verb stealing. Yes. In other words, the democratic process, which, according to Roberts, should be the arena through which social change happens, is presented as so far removed from the court court, that the, the idea that the court can have a say on the issues that the democratic process is interested in is itself seen as undemocratic, undemocratic, which is odd. It's fascinating given that the Supreme Court is also designed as the arbiter of the democratic process. Yes. That it determines when legislators and legislative bodies have been unconstitutional. It is fascinating the way in which the will of the sovereign has manifested itself through the legislative, through the judiciary, through the executive, through the different parts of government, are being artificially and extraneously fractured in order to prevent change. Yeah, it's as if there are cracks 
that are specifically designed for people to fall into them. Yes. That there's just massive holes yes. in the state for particular people, individuals, and groups. And it's those holes are the states of exception. Yes. And by falling into them, and this is something we'll come back to when we discuss caste in a later episode, by creating those cracks through which these bodies can fall, the bodies are reduced to nothing but that category. Yes. So in falling through the crack, you are defined by the mainstream as that. deviant in that form. Yes. Yes. I mean, Dr. Cirrus was a highly accomplished academic who had built this excellent, prestigious career. And yet we're talking about him in the context of being a gay man. Yes. There is also a way in which other categories intersect in various ways. And this is something that has been part of the movement that has built up around LGBT rights. So I'm quoting from a very good article uh, published in The Hindu called The Test of Dignity and Democracy. To be queer in India requires a great amount of economic, gender and caste privilege. When dignity requires privilege, democracy has lost its way. And one of the ways in which we could apply that is for all of the tragedy of Dr. Cyrus's life that we've referred to. It is interesting how much time we spend talking about Dr. Cyrus and how little time we spend talking about the rickshaw puller. Yes. Who was caught up in the same story and whose identity as a rickshaw puller was used explicitly by the university in justifying their view that Dr. Cyrus engaged in gross misconduct. Yes. It contributed to this idea that it was a scandal. Yes. Would it have been different had he been filmed having consensual sex with another male academic from the university? Would things have, have been different? Who knows? Who knows? But it wouldn't have been the same. What form the difference would have taken, we don't know. We can't know. I think we should come back to the resistance and the idea of, of resistance and the importance of resistance in this particular context because activists have been mobilized in the wake of last week and the Supreme Court's acceptance of these petitions. Yes. Um, and they are just as much a part of this story as the official branches of the state. Absolutely. They are just as much a part of the state. Absolutely. And I think this leads us to Judith Butler. Landmark queer theorist. Yes, and feminist and philosopher. Feminist philosopher. And, and we've got a quote from Judith Butler, which we think helps us to understand the ways in which these competing forces can be thought of through the concept of will and willfulness. Yes. This is from a 2000 chapter titled Restaging the Universal. And she says, The will that is officially represented by the government is thus haunted by a will that is excluded from the representative function. Thus, the government is established on the basis of a paranoid economy in which it must repeatedly establish its one claim to universality by erasing all remnants of those wills it excludes from the domain of representation. And we see this. This, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is precisely what's happening. The will of the government, the sovereign will, is being wielded, manipulated, conveniently split up and united in order to justify the subservience of a deviant will the subservience of the will of an individual, a community, a class, a caste, a sexuality that is seen to be 
abnormal, that is seen to be other. And it's that alterity that represents both the marginalization and the resistance. That is the source from where the challenge comes. It's also hopeful, and it's a really dynamic situation as well. Hopefully one that will be able to do a part two. Yes, so we are definitely going to carry on this conversation when we visit Cast at a later date. I think that's us done for the moment. I would say so. Thank you for listening. Let us know what you think. Our next episode will be on the industry of Valentine's Day and what that might mean for policing sexualities. So we're carrying on conversations in a similar vein. That discussion will also bring in immigration policies, border control... Nation state and 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 the role it has in regulating lives. Yes. Thank you for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.